Mr Speaker, the international community has been in Afghanistan a long time. The transition will take some years. We will be engaged through this decade at least. Soldiers trained in precise, close-order drill develop alertness and instinctive obedience to commands, both on the parade ground and on the battlefield. Welcome to the MTT podcast, everyone. Today, we are continuing with our Afghan series, our series on the wars in Afghanistan. And today, we're speaking to an Australian veteran of Afghanistan, uh, A, who's agreed to come speak to us and share his experience. Uh, welcome, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, glad to be here. Um, looking forward to it, actually. Great. Yeah, no, it's it's. Um, I'm also looking forward to speaking to all different types of veterans. And uh, uh, you are the first NATO veteran we'll be speaking to on the podcast. So we've spoken to some Soviet veterans. And um, yeah, and obviously, particularly you are an Australian veteran. So uh, if you don't mind telling us a, sort of a bit about before you went, uh, obviously, it's 2021 now. So, so when did you go to Afghanistan? Uh, I went at the end of 2003 into 2004. Okay. Um, so by that point, uh, it had been going on for about well, two years almost. Right, right. Okay. And um, obviously, before you deployed, uh, how long or when did you join the, and I assume it's the Australian Army. You were in the Australian Army, is that right? Yep, that's right. That's right. Okay. And when did uh, you join? Yeah, so I joined in um, 2000, early 2003. Um, the, the thing is, um, I don't know if it's the same in England. Uh, it might be. But um, in Australia, you have the, um, you're able to join at 17, right? Mm -hmm. So you can drop out of high school and you can go into the army instead, um, which is what I chose to do. So I was, I was 17 uh, upon enlistment. Um, although you may be 17, or although you may be in the army, you're not allowed to um, go on active service until you're 18. Yeah. You can't deploy. So they like kind of like getting you at 17 because they give, that gives you a year of solid training before there's any possibility that you're going to deploy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, so just a bit about what happened there. I, um, where I come from, but like my hometown and my home region has one of the highest uh, suicide rates in the OECD. Right. And there's not a lot of work. It's very, very dry. They had a 12 year drought. Um, all of this stuff combines to, to create not a lot of hope. Right. Uh, I, I didn't really see too many ways out of, the situation that me and my mates found ourselves in. And um, there was me and another guy. We were in the same classes together and we were talking about it. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, what are you going to do? And he was saying, oh, I'm going to I'm going to go into the army. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, um, I'll sort of join um, as well. Mm. Turns out he went into the army reserve <laughs> and became a copper. And um, I, I went regular. OK, so he's. I believe still serving in the army reserve, which is like, um, in England, the, the territorials, right. Um, uh, he's still in the army reserve and he's, he's, a um, junior NCO. 
now right. after 15 years he's a sort of a i don't even know what he does i want to say artillery anyway it doesn't matter okay okay um so i started young because i didn't see any point in finishing school because what was i going to do when i did graduate right so that, that was a big a big factor for you the uh, economics of it you're living in a sort of uh, you know economically deprived area i guess and the army was the best choice then for you yeah and i mean my dad my grandfather and his grandfather and so on they'd been in the army for generations like um you know my my great grandfather was in um the, the boer war mm. um and pre previous to that it, it had been a long-running tradition so it's mm -hmm. you know i i had grown up around army bases i had grown up around soldiers so it mm. seemed like a natural thing to do and i had this plan where i was going to go off and become bloody rsm and I was gonna, I was gonna be mad, and it was gonna be my career. It didn't work out mm. that way, but mm. uh, that was that was sort of my trajectory. Mm. Mm. I see, I see. And All right. I'm in the dry and the heat. Right, right. So, and you joined uh, an infantry battalion, uh, yes. or right? Okay, yes, infantry. I did. Yes, okay. yes. And then, um, did you specialize, or were you just in the rifle company? What, what no, you... no, no. I was DFSW, which is like the machine guns. Direct fire support weapons. Okay, direct fire support weapons. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the way it works in in Australia is you go and do your recruit training at a place called Kapuka, mm -hmm. which is the um, the sort of the recruit training um, base, and it lasts about six weeks, and it teaches you all the the basic stuff that you need to know in order to in order to soldier effectively. About radios, you learn about weapons, you do the obstacle course, the bayonet course. Rifle packages, you've also got navigation, which is pretty key for the army. Basic first aid is swimming. So, six um, weeks is the, the basic training, the comprehensive training is six weeks. Yep, that's right. Okay. And that's and for then, all corps, right? Right. That's not just for grunts, that's for all corps. Yeah. And anyone who wants to go into the army, um, goes into Kapuka and they do their six weeks. And to be honest, I mean, you get yelled at a lot and it's a learning curve, but it's to be honest, it's, it wasn't that hard. Okay. Like once, once you sort of got into the swing of it, it wasn't that difficult. Mm -hmm. um, most, most of the time you're either in classes or on the parade ground. Um, you do, I think, two nights outfield. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, you got to do your fitness and your obstacle courses and stuff, but a lot of what they do is just training you up to what they call BFA standard, which is battle fitness assessment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, getting your fitness levels up. Because the thing is, not everyone is going off to infantry. Right. right? You've got people going into the band, or you've got people going into education, <laughs> or um, you know, they just want to, yeah, they just want to honk on some trumpets. Um, you've got people going into tanks, um, artillery, Ordnance, and they're just going to sit in a in a. Uh, I'm not supposed to swear here, or it's a, oh, you, you can swear. It's fine. Then it's fine. All right, you got people going off into the fucking you know stores, um, logistics. So not everyone needs excellent skills at being an infantryman. They just have to have the basic ability to fire a weapon at what they're shooting at. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is um, you know values. They right. do a lot of about customs, traditions, values. Um, 
the, yeah, the law. Discipline, right? Yeah. 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 And and then once you graduate your recruit training, you then go off to your specialization, which they call an IET, uh, okay. initial employment training, and that's your specialization. Okay, right. That's, so, that's where you became an infantryman, then, right? Yes, that's right. Um, you go to school of infantry, which uh, for me was at Singo, uh, sorry Singleton, but I think I think it's moved now, but that's irrelevant. Okay. <laughs> The, so you go into your... to, to Singleford, you say. Uh, Singleton. Singleton. Yeah. But like I said, that that's probably moved now. I okay. believe it has to another that's... place. But um, okay. that's where you learn the, the trade, right? And you do 10 weeks at Singo. Um, sorry, Singleton. It's a 10-week course in how to, how to soldier effectively. Mm-hmm. And then once you... Um, you go through Singo, you then get to, you, you wind up at your battalion, you get your posting. Yeah. And yeah. They, they may assign you to like um, a rifle platoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. SIG, mm-hmm. Uh, scouts, or mm-hmm. um, in, in my case, it was the sort of the, the, the machine guns. Mm-hmm. Right. So I wound up. I wound up there. Oh, and which? And I mean, if you if you if you don't mind telling, which battalion uh, would you were you posted to after training then? Five RAR. Okay. Uh, that RAR means Royal Australian Regiment. Okay. So we, you know, how in like in in say England, you've got um, all sorts of weird names for your for your regiments, like I don't know, Coldstream Guards. Right. Yorkshire Regiment. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. for us. It's just numbers. So you got okay. the Royal Australian Regiment. And then you've got X amount of battalions within that regiment. It's just one, two, three, four, five, so on. Okay, I see. And then it's not regional. It's not sort of uh, even if your buddy that joined up with you, even if he wanted to be in your battalion or be with you, it's not regionalized. So obviously, with with the the, the UK it forces, it, it's regionalized. So generally, you have a Mercian regiment, which is the Midlands and Yorkshire for the Yorkshire regiment, and, and you get the Scottish regiments, the Scottish Guards, and and whatnot, which are quite regionalized. So you, you, you might not get the chance to do that? Reg, regular army, no. Uh, but the, um, the, the chock, oh, sorry, the, um, the reservists, they, they tend to be a lot more regional. Like you have the Royal Victorian Regiment, Royal New South Wales Regiment, Royal okay. Queensland Regiment, um, you know, University of Queensland Regiment. Or, and that, that tends to be a lot more regional. So the RVR is based in Victoria. Okay, got you. Got you. Okay. But for, for regular units, no, you all just get chucked together. Yeah. Which is kind of cool because so no, I mean, was... Yeah, go on. No, 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 go ahead, no, good. Which is kind of cool because I was meeting the, these... I mean, I thought I was fucking deprived. There, there were guys coming in from places I'd never heard of, and I'd ask them about it, and they'd be like, oh, um, I'm so isolated. So, so normally um, when, you, when you're off to recruit training, they put you on a bus. Right, and the bus yeah. arrives at Puka and you get off the bus. There were guys from such isolated places that the army had to have planes fly them in. Really? Yeah, because they were from such isolated places. Um, Australia's, you know, it's a big country. Right. And many of these, many of these um, towns that, in which we live might only have 20 or 30 people in them. And the nearest town is, you know, 300 or 500 kilometers away. Yeah, 
That is that's that is quite that is I never thought about it like that. That's that's very barren, uh, almost yeah. yeah, desolate, empty, yeah. empty places, empty spaces between places, and I suppose not necessarily yeah. connected by road. Well, they they do have roads of varying quality. Dirt roads are real popular in Australia, uh-huh. and what they call I can't remember what they call it. It's like graded roads or something where yeah. they don't they they're not tarmacked. They just chuck gravel down, and then right. sort of a truck rolls over the top and kind of flattens it down. But yeah. then we do have full dirt roads, okay. a lot of full dirt roads. Right, I see, I see. Okay, so so these guys coming in also then, yeah, also coming from uh, economically deprived or sort of not necessarily uh, places with lots of opportunities. Isolated places. Isolated, okay. Yeah, and these, these guys, these, these sort of guys that come out from on the big stations, they are massive guys. Oh, yeah. The farming boys, like right? <laughs> yeah, they are, they are jacked. And they don't require a lot of training because most of the time, because they're working out on the, on the stations, they sort of grew up on the stations. They've already got their, their field craft down. They've already got their nav down. They don't need a lot of training. It's just put a bit of discipline in them and then send them off to their IET. I imagine they're also quite good at shooting. If, if they're living in the countryside with hunting and perhaps, uh, I don't know, shoot, shooting yeah. dingoes yeah. or something. <laughs> I don't know what, what, what wild animals are fighting out there. Yeah, in terms of their mill skills, they're already halfway there. Right, right. I see, I see. On another side, that though, obviously, in the UK, it's quite well known. Uh, you know, the divide between the officers and the soldiers is is stark. It's a real sort of real uh, perfect example of the class system. You have the the posh elite officers uh, from universities, and who also have the family legacy. You know, my father would fought with Wellington. Uh, yeah. And you know, Daddy was also in the regiment, and you know all of that kind of stuff. The Ruperts, yeah. as they're called in the UK, um, and then you have the, the lads, the, the the squaddies, the grunts, whatever you want to call them. Uh, yeah. In the UK, that divide is very sharp. Whether it's the accent, the appearance, the education level, all of these things, it's a very sharp divide. Uh, is it the same with the Australian and the Australian Army? No. Um... The officers, it's, it's the army's a lot more egalitarian than, I mean, I haven't had too much exposure to the British army, except for my uncle, um, yeah. who, was an, who was an RSM himself. Mm. And, um, you know, my grandfather used to talk about it. And it seems that the Australian military is a lot more egalitarian. Um, the, the, for example, the platoon commander, the subby, um, would, you would just call him Skip. Really? You wouldn't call him Sir? Uh, well, it depends on the situation, but if you need their attention or something, you're like, excuse me, Skip, I just got a question. Skip. Yeah. Sp- is, sure, is, skip. Is skipper like from a ship? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I mean, they're, they're second lieutenants anyway, so nobody gives a fuck. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you know what it's like with the subby. You nobody really gives them a lot of respect because their their whole mindset is, I've just been to college, I therefore know everything. All right, for this exercise, we're just going straight up the guts. Right. And then everybody gets slaughtered in the exercise. And, you know, they, it takes a while to bring them to heel, and you don't want officers to get ahead of themselves. Sure. So <laughs> even, a, even so, you, you were obviously a, a private soldier when you yep. arrived at battalion. So even a private mm-hmm. soldier can call the second lieutenant, call him Skip? Yeah. Okay, wow. That would never, would never allow, would never happen. Yeah. 
and even the NCOs, even the NCOs, I mean, I know you're supposed to be like, oh, you know, yes, corporal, no corporal, yes, sergeant, no yeah, sergeant. Yeah, yeah, Sergeants yeah, yeah. were a bit different, but in the section, um, it was first name. First name, okay. First yeah. name. Oh, so you'd be like, yeah, so you'd be like, your corporal, you know, might be named, I don't know, Brendan. You're like, hey, Brendan, i got a question. Mm. Mm-hmm. The, the Lance corporals would try it on, like the section two ICs, you know, just mm-hmm. got their first look on their arm and yeah, they try yeah. and throw the flag around a bit, but everybody laughs and... They, they kind of fit into the group. Mm. Um, but in terms of the, the separation between officers and, um, and, uh, nega, um, shit, and uh, OAS, the officers did eat in the officers' mess. And they, they were a lot more, you could tell an officer, right, because of the sort of poncified way they walked, but they weren't <laughs> particularly high and mighty. They were often, they were very reserved. Right. Okay. They were they were very reserved, but they were never they never gave the impression that they were in some way better than us. Mm-hmm. Um, they were always very reserved. They they spoke softly. They mm-hmm. didn't swear as much. They mm-hmm. they tended to be much like us, but better educated. Okay, so so actually, so so the accent also a big thing. So they they didn't have that much of a difference in the accent between. No, no, the- but you can tell in Australia. You can tell sort of a where someone or what level of society someone comes from by the way they talk but it's not as pronounced as in england right, um, right. Yeah. you know what who old being there was, there was none of that yeah 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 exactly but you can tell an educated man from someone who doesn't have an education for example right right okay. um, there, there was something else oh yeah um the big problem the big difference and where you saw a big gap between um between officers and soldiers was the sort of the careerist officers mm-hmm. mm. if you mm. know what i mean um, right. you know there there may be a captain and they just can't wait to get to major um and they, they generally don't have a lot of leadership ability they're they're doing their time in the battalion or in the in the squadron until such time as they get their majority and then they go off to some desk job and then they'll you know fuck that up and they'll get promoted sideways to to lieutenant colonel and um they they were a real problem in terms right. of the hierarchy because they just kept fucking things up yeah yeah, yeah if yeah. there was ever a problem you generally knew which officers were responsible for it yeah no, i think i know what you mean sort of pe- people yeah careers so they're more, more focused on their career and not the mission at hand so they, they're doing what needs to be done so that they look like they're doing their role as as, as, as in a, the best way possible and uh, end up actually uh, doing things that aren't good for the mission so a contradiction between mission and career yeah, yeah. at least that's what my experience of it was yeah yeah and the heads the heads know what they're like uh, uh the heads is like um the sort of staff officers and the the higher leadership like the colonel they know what they're like and they want to get them out because they're toxic for the environment but they can't if they leave them where they are that's going to be trouble the solution seems to be to promote those people sideways um so move them to a desk job where they can't hurt anyone even if that means giving them a promotion mm. Mm. yeah yeah kind of works so, but then so actually, so what was your um i mean uh you obviously had a co a commanding officer a colonel in the battalion i assume or a lieutenant colonel um yeah. was your do you have a respect for the colonel? Was he quite a good colonel, yeah. your, your colonel? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was all right. Um, they, they had problems later with his replacement, but um, he, was, he was an all right bloke. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I don't RS- remember him. I didn't, didn't see him that much. Right, right, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, the RSM, he was all right. I think he was spent most of his time. He had um, he had a look on his face like an utterly defeated man. Um, <laughs> you know, dealing with Dick. I don't know. I would imagine that um, the discipline in our army is a little bit lower than yours, just by nature of the people. Um, there's like constant problems that he has to deal with, especially with the civilian authorities like the police. <laughs> yes, no, that's the same, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and I feel bad for senior NCOs. I do, because they have to deal with such stupidity from the ORs. Um, from the who, sorry? And the ORs. The other ranks. Oh, other ranks, okay, got you, okay, sorry, yeah, right, right, okay. Uh, they have to deal with such stupidity from from their subordinates. It must it must weigh on you. Sure, 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 like, sure. You know, every every Friday night, you must be going fuck. What am I going to have to deal with over the weekend? Yeah, because you that, know that, that some is... dumb shit's going to get in a fight or you know, bar fights and, and, and yeah, get, stuff. Eat their stomach pumped at the hospital or crash their car or you know something right. retarded. They're going to have to. That's going to ruin their weekend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a universal thing across all <laughs> the, the soldiers, uh, many places around the world, whether it's on, you know, Thailand or the Philippines or even in the UK or Canada or wherever. But, uh, you know, sol soldiers, particularly in groups, are not um, yeah. are a handful. And the local police usually suffer probably more than, than anyone else, to be honest. But, um, OK, yeah, interesting stuff. A lot, a lot of, a lot of commonality there. I think, I think there's some universal stuff across all of the armies there. Um, yeah. Okay. And so obviously, you, you, uh, if you, if you, st if you last start in 2003, joined in 2003, you would have finished your training in mid 2003, and then uh, yeah. deployed at the end of that year, or what? Yeah. Yeah. I had about three months, four months. Um, the when so I within, when I within got... one year of joining, so you you, jo you joined and, and before your one year anniversary of being in the army you were already heading out to afghan that was just after yeah just after my 18th birthday okay so you just turned uh, 18 wow yeah okay. yeah so yeah. you've got to remember that um australia's only a tiny army we we don't have a massive army um two years or three years prior to going into afghanistan um we went into east timor and we had a substantial deployment in east timor um yeah which sapped our resources. After September 11th, the, the world collectively shit itself and armies started undergoing um, like expansion. Mm, um, right. But our expansion was real slow. So we were so far overextended, they were basically just trying their best to get people in and just get them somewhere where they needed to be to take the pressure off those who were already there. Mm. Uh, the the um, what do you call it? The the deployment rosters just kept increasing. Mm. You know, you, you people would be doing longer deployments and less time back home before they rotate back to their next one. And it might not be Afghanistan; it might be somewhere else around the world. Mm. But mm. the 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 rotations were getting faster and faster. I, I believe it slowed down now because we're not involved in that much anymore. But yeah. um, at the time, you, know, you had um, Iraq. I think Iraq was, yeah, Iraq was going on at that time. Well, we uh, just started, yes, 2003 would have just begun, right, yeah, beginning yeah. of the year. Yeah. East Timor and Afghanistan were the big ones. And they, they were really winding back East Timor to basically nobody there so that they could 
relocate or reallocate those troops to where they were needed more. Sorry, just to clarify, the, the end of 2003 or the beginning? The end. The end, okay. And you flew in, uh, how, how much, I mean, obviously with, with, with us, obviously I deployed in 2012, so we had a uh, year, year and a half training cycle for six month tour. So we would train for a year and a half to get ready for the six months. Whereas you obviously only joined less than a year before you deployed. So how long or how far in advance did you know you were going to go? Almost immediately because I got to battalion and they were like, okay, this is what we're doing. Uh, mm. The training cycle, the training cycles real fast. Um, mm. We're trying to squeeze as much training as we can in. And mm. I kind of like, I, I got to battalion kind of in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, so everybody kind of knew what was going on, even if it hadn't been, um, the orders hadn't come down yet. Everybody knew because, you know, you spend enough time in battalion. If the training cycle's real slow, you know, nothing much is coming up. But then as the training cycle speeds up, you go, why is that speeding up? And then people start to talk. Um, you got your friends in the orderly room who hear things on the wind and, you know, rumors start to spread. And then when the orders come, you're like, yeah, we already knew. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you guys maybe so you, you you they they told you as soon as you got to battalion you're going to Afghanistan, and this is the training schedule we need to fill. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Okay. Uh, but was, you, you 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 got you told you you, were gonna, you already knew that you're going to be in the uh, the support weapons company, the direct direct fire fire support company. Um, so you started training straight away for that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, what on a, a Browning a fifty cal or what were you what were you training on specifically then for that? Fifty eight. What? Mag 58. I believe you call it a general purpose machine. Oh, GPMG. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody got any questions on the practice? Happy? Okay. Watch and shoot. Watch and shoot. Yeah, got an alley. When you deployed to Afghanistan, so what was that like? Where, where did you fly into? Did you. Uh, arrive in Kabul, or were you deployed straight out to a fob? How did that go? No. Um, right, there was a transit through Kabul, and then off to uh, Tarankot, where we were posted. So the Australian presence was pretty much inside of one base at Tarankot. Um, Just to clarify, where is Tarankot in Afghanistan? Which which region, roughly? It's kind of in the southeast. It's not very far southeast, but if you um, if you know where Pakistan is, yeah, and then you've got like what they call the north the northwest border of Pakistan. If yeah. you know where the Khyber Pass is, it's a bit yeah. southwest of the Khyber Pass. Okay, like, okay, quite far south. So, so it's um, east of Kandahar, maybe south of Jalalabad, sort of between those two. If if you know um, Lashkar. Yeah. North, uh, getting my compass points mixed up. Northeast of Lashkar, like almost directly northeast. Okay. Okay. About okay. So actually, uh, odd northeast of Lashkar. Okay. It's not. Is it in Helmand Province? No, it is not. It's in Oruzgan Province. Okay. So Oruzgan, Oruzgan was kind of cool because it wasn't that hectic. Mm. Okay. 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 So. 
2003 flying to Kabul and then R2 R2 Tarankot. And they you were helicoptered into Tarankot or flew, flew in there or by truck? How did you get into there? Hercules. Hercules, okay. Yeah, because uh, when when the battalion deployed, um, there were there had already been people there, but they were still kind of setting it up. Um, for, because initially it was just special forces, right? Uh, right. They deployed the squadrons, the, the SAS squadrons, and once the SAS kind of got things a bit, a little bit under control, they started to deploy battalions. So they were still shipping in a whole lot of um, men because they were still setting up the, the task force <coughs> and um, material. Mm. So there were there were flights going in a lot. Mm. Mm. I see. So actually, yeah. So of course, I think yeah. To to, to apply the context is. 2003, so the the capturing of Kabul and the pushing out of the Taliban from Kabul has only just been happened for what maybe just under two years prior to that. Yeah. Um, so so this is very early in the war. Yeah. So it was it was quite early on, and the Taliban was still a very active presence. Mm. And in also most at the same of the time, then I suppose the ANA and the Afghan local police would have been pretty much almost babies. So they sort of uh, you know very. Early in development, if if they even existed, was there an ANA presence there at that point yet? Not really. They had police. Police. The police were fucking. But yeah, the um, they they had. I remember they had police around, um, but I don't remember. Honestly, I don't really remember. Even like the the um, the interpreters that we had and the, the the people who were helping us, they were they were civilians. Mm -hmm. So basically, the Afghan government hadn't really been established yet in, in, in earnest I mean with, with no sort of actual national army presence on the ground or sort of with you guys so yeah very early in the process yeah I mean uh, Hamid Karzai was still the president yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah interesting okay and so just to give us some context so Tarankot is a big town or is it a sort of farming area uh, and also, in terms of the actual ground, I mean, uh, everyone's familiar with the term the green zone or, you know, sort of, you know, whether that's the one that's in the cities of like Kabul, the sort of secured diplomatic quarter with, with, with security everywhere, or the green zone as in the strips of green farmland that you get in Helmand between the rivers in the desert. But is this the same for Tarankot? Is it also more desert or is it mountainous? And how, how many people? Is it lots of people or is it where you're in a town or, yeah, what was the... What was the actual countryside like where you were? It was hilly. I wouldn't say it was massive mountains like you see in other parts of the country, but it was hilly. Uh, it was very rural, very green, lots of farmers. It wasn't a massive town. Uh, I would say tens of thousands of people. There would have been less than 100,000 people there, like a lot okay. less. Um, it probably, I would say 30, 20, 30,000 people. And, and was uh, it, are they all clustered in one big town or is it spread like a farming community sort of yeah kind of. it's it's really spread out so you've got the the town itself and then you've got the villages that sort of mm. satellites of the, of the town and mm. then you've got the farms outside of that and obviously are they all perhaps our listeners don't know but in afghanistan you have to have uh, pashtu speakers dari speakers and then within that you have the ethnicities of the pashtu ethnicity or tribe, if you want to use that term, was, um, you got then Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras. So the it people there, what were they? It was predominantly uh, 
push through people. Push through, push through people. Push through, yeah, sure, push through. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and yeah. yeah, there were a lot of minorities there. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, and when you guys deployed, obviously you were 18 at the time. Did you guys yeah. get any understanding or did they even try and uh, yeah. give you yeah, yeah. some context to what, what that was and who they were and, and, and all these complexities? Before we got there, we had lots. Um, a yeah. lot of it was about cultural, um, what you can and can't do. I mean, it was a little bit basic. It was like, you're, you're not supposed to drink. This is what's going to affront them. Um, a lot of it was about, you know, if you shoot someone, then there is a high risk that their whole family is going to flip out and join the Taliban. So be careful what you're shooting at. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of sites are protected. Don't go around, you know, talking shit about mosques or um, don't make trouble that's, that's really going to upset them. Um, so, you know, we learned about like they, they, they have these codes of behavior, mm-hmm. um, which, which they follow. Um, and we learned a, a little bit about the codes of behavior. I can't remember what they are, now, but, um, uh, yeah, you, you're jogging my memory now. Actually, I can remember a couple of them, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, they, this is what will piss them off. This is what won't, um, when, when you, I mean, there weren't a lot of opportunities to go into town, um, as a rule, it was inside of the wire. If you weren't actively out patrolling, you were inside the wire. And you could get what you wanted in there, and the, the locals would sort of come in and try and sell you the DVDs and shit. But, um, right. <laughs> but as a rule, we didn't go outside, so it didn't matter that much. But the yeah. problem was that the, the local people would start to sort of talk about you know, what we were doing behind the walls, and we, we did have to be quite careful. Right, right, right. Well, I think that's something maybe listeners would like to uh, understand or should, maybe should know is that I assume it's the same for your deployment but the NATO deployment in general unlike um, Vietnam or maybe World War Two, where you went and deployed somewhere you could go out of the camp and you could go and visit the local town like in Northern Ireland for example like the, you, there was some degree of you could go and, 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 and visit not visit but you could go out of the base whereas in Afghanistan you were not allowed to. You, you were you were in the wire. You were in the camp, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, it's, you know, in Vietnam, they um, <laughs> the the guys and I know a few guys who had been in Vietnam and um, Malaya, mm-hmm. and they they used to say, you know, we we were never bored because the moment we got off duty, say they were posted in somewhere like um, Nui Dat or um, I can't remember the other fucking place. Anyway, they would just immediately go into town get completely shit-faced and shag a load of prostitutes. Jesus, okay. And that was like their off-duty time was right. party. Right. We, we right. had that opportunity. Um, there there was stuff to do. There was stuff to do. There was like games and shit. But um, the, the capacity that we had for entertainment wasn't that high. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the camp that you guys, I mean, you find ways to entertain yourself, you know, a magazine or films or whatever, but, uh, okay, yeah, but, but obviously no no interaction with the, um, very, how much interaction did you, did you guys have with the local population? Uh, there were people who were allowed to come in and sell things to us. Okay. And they, they kind of got vetted. Um, they had to have a pass to come on. Um, and then when you were patrolling, people would sort of 
to have a chat with you. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you, well, again, I being just a grunt, I didn't have too much to do with it. But the the sort of intelligence people would would want to go out and talk to the locals, and you had to sort of escort them out. Um, you would sort of smile at them, and they'd kind of smile back. Like they didn't hate us, mm-hmm. but there was definitely a, a real lack of contact. And I don't think any contact would have helped, but there was a sort of a lack of contact. Um, unless we had a reason to interact with them, we didn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear that one. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, like I said, early part of the war, early part of the deployment. So your goals at this point were what? What were you doing? Dominating the ground, sort of finding insurgent bases, uh, Taliban bases? Were you looking for weapons caches or what were the general sort of missions and tasks you, you would you'd find yourself doing at that point well there were there were a couple um the first one was obviously to eliminate the the taliban presence because at the time the taliban was still uh, they weren't a very active force by this point that by by the time we got there they were sort of running away um mm. to pakistan to to consolidate um, but they, they were still setting up ambushes. They were still dropping mortars on us. Um, they were still trying in their own way to dominate the villages. Mm-hmm. So our point was just, uh, our objective was just to make sure that they weren't a force that could cause trouble within the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, they, they used to enjoy um, ambushing sort of convoys and things running running between cities. So mm-hmm. you had to do like a road patrol, which was fucking shit. Um, and you had to sort of clear the, the sides of the roads to make sure that the convoy was safe to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, you might hear a rumor that there was a, you know, sort of a Taliban guy watching the village. It was mm-hmm. your job to, well, the intelligence guys would have to go in and sort of track them down and find the information. And then it was, the battalion's job to go and pick that person up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we were particularly nervous about mm-hmm. any mobile phone, right? Um, because at that time, mobile phones, even in the West, were kind of a new thing. Um, you had your shitty Motorola's, but over there, your average local couldn't afford one, right? Right. So anyone on a mobile phone, obviously. Um, had it had been given to them by someone, and that that made them a threat. But yeah, it was just to, generally to ensure the the security of the um, the province, but also, I mean, it was Operation Slipper. Were you on Slipper? No. Oh, no. So Operation Slipper was um, the get rid of the Taliban part of the depl- of the the entire deployment, um, the entire campaign. Because you know how they kept changing objectives. Operation Slipper was all about um, remove the Taliban as a force and eliminate them. So we would do two types of basic patrol. Mm -hmm. Um, Patrolling to make sure that everything was calm and peaceful and that no one was making any trouble. And, you know, it was often kind of like a, a flame to a moth. It's kind of trying to provoke something to happen so that we can go out and get them. 
Um, and then the other mm -hmm. one was particularly sort of punitive, like you know that there's a, a cell or you know that there's a, a group <laughs> operating on this hill. Um, right, let's go and get them. Right, that's the second type of patrol, right? So more of a, yeah. uh, more of a natural like operation. Said, yeah, it was a more punitive thing, like you are going out to get someone or you are going out to yeah. take on this cell rather than just we are going out to see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I get you. Right, yeah. So routine patrol and then actual operation sort of kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah, specific yeah. with an objective yeah. with more 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 set. Okay. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Okay. So I mean on these um on these uh on the I mean obviously routine patrols I'm I'm sure that most people can imagine what that's like and I'm sure it's the same for you. You you would pick a route uh, usually around a particular village or on the edge of where you thought this, the the insurgents or the Taliban might be and it would be a foot patrol maybe with vehicles and you walk along and you know check for IDs and walk around, wave to some people, hand out some sweets and some pens and whatever, and then basically come back and just wait, wait to be shot at, basically. <laughs> right? Yes. I assume that's how it was for you guys, right? So yeah, we would we would drive out and we would drive to whatever village we were going to, and then we would dismount the vehicles, um, walk through the village. Like you said, wait for someone to shoot you. Um, that's that's it. Then, if nothing happened, you would get back in the trucks. Maybe drive to the next village. Maybe. Or maybe just go home. <clears throat> because the thing is, the, 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 especially the, 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 the push dudes, the mm -hmm. um, they're really tactically very clever. Mm -hmm. And if you do the same thing twice, they'll notice that and then they'll, they'll lay in wait for you. Um, they're very good. They have a good feeling of the ground. They have a good feeling of um, strategy. So that was a lesson, well, one, that was a lesson that we had to learn very quickly. But um, it meant that we never really quite knew what we were doing until we were doing it. Because you couldn't set yourself into a pattern because the moment you set yourself into a pattern, they kind of know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to keep mixing things up. Mm -hmm. So if we would go out to village A, on the first day and then village B on the second day and C on the third day. The yeah. next day we might go back to C again and then across to, to B and A so that they never quite knew where we were going. And even when you were in the village, you wouldn't walk down the same street. You would even right. something small like, you know, you, you stand in this doorway, but the next time you stand in that doorway and that's stuff that they pick up. Mm -hmm. and they go, oh, we'd better, we'd better not try anything today because we don't know what the, the, the way the Australians are deployed or we don't know the way um, where each weapon is because that's the kind of stuff they pick up on. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, that's so, true. That's the pat pattern setting, right? Yeah. Mm. 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 IEDs okay. weren't a huge problem at that time. Okay. If, if you were on a patrol, you were more worried about things like snipers and mortars. Okay, I see. So you guys were actually so small arms fire and and, and mortars were were your biggest concern. Yeah. Thing is, mortars are great for for guys like the Taliban because they're easy to carry, and they can sort of they see us coming up the road because we're not exactly quiet in the in the bushmasters. Um, the bushmasters like a it's not. Yeah, I was going to say actually, can, can, let's just describe some of the. Because you're on a, on a 2003 deployment, um, yep. some of the vehicles that appeared later in the war, like after 2005, the Mastiff and some of the big MRAV, I think that's what the Americans have now, 
big, heavy vehicles that were designed to be blown up and multiple times can be blown up multiple yep. times. But you, well, obviously, early deployments, you, you guys, these vehicles didn't exist yet. So what were you guys riding around in? Kind of did. We had what was called Bushmaster. Okay. And the Bushmaster was one of, and in, at the time, um, they were actually built in my hometown, but that's another story. Okay. Um, they, they are, they're called infantry mobility vehicles. So they drive you to an appointed point, like along a main road, and then you get out. And if you're if you're going into sort of sea action, then you might jump into an APC or you might jump into a some kind of troop carrier. But the the Bushmaster, the um, infantry mobility vehicle, is just designed to get the infantry from one place to another in safety quite quickly. Okay, so it's a four a four wheeled big truck armored thing. Yep. Um, it designed to get blown up okay okay and it's it's four wheels and it's just uh, a sarcophagus for want of a better word that you could basically shoot at all day and it won't get blown up mm -hmm. and the americans at the time were, were driving around in humvees right which were fucking hopeless they they had no armor at all you could you could put pistol bullets through the doors uh <laughs> And they were, they were sort of welding steel plates onto the side of Humvees and they were sort of removing the glass because the glass shatters and gets in their fucking eyes and whatever. Yeah. And they wound up borrowing a load because you could you could run them over it like a, a Bushmaster. You could run it over a landmine or an anti-tank mine and, and people would still be okay inside. Yeah. That's quite a it, it quite quite then, yeah. I think, I think there's yeah. a similar story that, that the British were deployed... Particularly in in Iraq, were were still driving around in in the the Land Rovers, defended Land Rovers, which you know designed for Northern Ireland and and, and yeah, expecting them to come up against IEDs and were, were, were the Snatch Land Rover was a particular thing, a death trap, that's what they called it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we use Land Rovers, but not there. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Dutch bought a load, a load of them, because mm -hmm. they were that effective, because right. they would get hit by an RPG. And everyone inside would be like, what was that? Right. <laughs> and they, they, they had these little, um, it had a bar fridge in it. Um, and seat had a belts. Fridge? And, yeah, it had a bar fridge in it. Uh, seat belts. Uh, these really sort of comfort seats. And um, these, these fire extinguishers on it that had sensors in it. So say a rocket hit the side and it punctured the side. You know how rockets work, right? Right. So the rocket kind of goes through and then it explodes and sucks all the oxygen out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, these fire extinguishers had sensors in that when the rocket hit, they would immediately sense where the rocket hit and start spraying shit on it so that it would never ignite. Mm. That's very, that's very, kind of, very nice. Yeah, it would, kind of, it would kind of nullify the rocket. I see. Uh, so, yeah, these Bushmasters are like super survivable things. Um, and in terms of the other stuff then, so the, the Bushmaster sounds like you were well prepared for the deployment. You had at least that good piece of kit. What about other stuff in terms of, I mean, the camouflage, the, the boots, uh, protective stuff, you know, sort of ballistic glasses and, uh, you know, general kit. Did you have, did you feel like you had the good kit, the right kit for the job? The right kit is what you make of it. Um, looking at the Americans, we were horribly undersupplied. Right. But, but it didn't do much to to affect our operational effectiveness. Um, I often find the Americans have got more shit than they need. 
Yeah. They don't know what to do with it except turn it on themselves. But um, look, you, you get on with what you got. And as long as we had enough, um, like the webbing that we had, they started bringing in this new chest rig. And I, I, you, I've never liked chest rig. Mm -hmm. I find it to be awkward and I find it, it it's stuffy. Mm -hmm. uh, but they started bringing in new chest rig. And then for, for a while, it was just like, um, they kept amending Sorry, it. Just, just because I, 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 I know what you're talking about, but webbing, for anyone who knows, is uh, oh, the ammunition pouches and, and a, a belt, a, usually over the yeah. shoulder sort of belt that you put all your ammo pouches and tools and things you're going to use uh, for combat. Yeah, like any, basically anything you want to carry, you put in your, your webbing and it's like pouches and a belt. Uh, um, and you can, you can attach different types of pouches. So as a gunner, I had the big um, ammunition pouches for belts, for mm -hmm. belts of ammunition. Belt fed, yeah. Guys, yeah, but the guys in Rifle Company had maybe extra small pouches for, for magazines. Magazines, because yeah. Their, their weapons were magazine fed. Um, you, you would potentially have a pouch at the back where you just put, like, I don't know, stuff. If you were going out and your patrol was going to last the night, you might take um, something to keep you warm, like a jacket. Like mm -hmm. One of those jacket things, uh, jacket. water bottles. Yeah, water bottles. Because as an infantryman, everything that you need, you have to carry on your back or on your body. Um, carrying a full pack is probably too heavy, especially if you're going out for the day um, and you're traveling, you're in and out of trucks. It's just a nightmare. You just want your webbing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the um, the the webbing. They kept they kept making changes to it, and. You know, they introduce something new, then suddenly there's 20 different versions of it. Uh, the boots were shit house. The boots didn't really work. They kept changing suppliers mm -hmm. for boots uh, because the, the boots just were no good. And they kept changing companies and changing suppliers. Um, the, the sort did, of you have have, of did you have to buy your own kit? You had the option to do so. You had the option. You would get what the army gives you, which isn't always the best piece of kit that you can get. Um, but if you're not happy with what the army gives you, you can purchase your own stuff. And did you buy any stuff of your own? No, I was poor as shit. <laughs> okay. uh, I was I was the, the cunt that you know Friday night immediately out drinking his entire salary. Right. Um, right. I never had the money for any for any really decent kit. And uh, I figured, uh, stupidly, I figured that, you know, the army wouldn't give me stuff that didn't work. Mm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> After, you know, the stuff that they gave us sort of worked. Yeah. No, it's true. I think it's the same. Yeah. So there's, you always make do with what you have, but generally lads will buy stuff, particularly boots. Yeah, Boot, boots was always always a gripe for us as well. And even, yeah, even, even as late as I deployed, they only just decided to, to, they found the final boot contact contractor, which was a private company in the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah. I, I, mean, I, yeah. Pinched, right, right. I went up pinching from the Q store a pair of old leather GP boots and okay. uh, just wearing them when they were trying to institute uh, more like suede desert boots or, you know, that kind of um, matte leather desert boot, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which. What's the word? Um, not model, but um, series after series of these boots just didn't fucking work. They were either falling to pieces or they weren't waterproof 
or the, they had a bit of plastic to protect your, your ankle and it was in your heel, right? And they, they had this plastic support piece that was designed to protect your ankle from rolling and shit, except for the fact that the moment you put that boot on, it cut your Achilles tendon. It cut into your Achilles tendon because it was just a random piece of plastic. Mm. So I, I wound up just going, well, these boots seem to work fine before. Um, I'll just keep wearing GPs. GPs are um, general purpose, sort of all, all I, the boots. The basic old leather boots. Old leather and, boots. Yeah, and I've still got them, and they're still comfy as shit. Okay. <laughs> um, right. You know, they're like slippers now. Um, right, 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 right. But, but do, guys would go out, and they would buy their own sunglasses, and they would buy um, different bits of small pieces of kit, like um, gloves and whatever they think they might need. And then, um, so... Okay, so it sounds like sounds like the kit was actually was okay, at least apart from the boots and whatnot. Um, yeah. I mean, then when it comes to you said it wasn't a particularly bad area where you were. The insurgency was still there, the Taliban was still there, um, and yeah. you were doing your patrols. So when you went on these, you know, punitive patrols as you call them, um, yeah. yeah. So tell us about some of those. I mean, how how did you get into some big contacts uh, or not? Not massive contacts. Um, like I said, where we were wasn't a particularly nasty area. So the, there was a Taliban presence, but they weren't as active as they were in other places. And we used to hear stories about what was going on, especially in the border areas um, in, the, in the east. We used to hear stories about what was going on in the east, and they were doing like massive like battalion-level or brigade-level operations. Mm. And, you know, there was just us, like one battalion plus the special forces and all the attached like caterers and shit. Um, the, again, the, the patrols, they never really put up much of a fight. If we were going to pick someone up or we had to search a house, we never got a lot of kickback on that. We never got a lot of pushback um, as much as you might think. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were contacts, um, like especially when you're, you're going through a, a farm Farms, for some reason, I think it's because they had fields and they were kind of out in the open. So you had to cross a field or something. Yeah, um, and there's ground, not really right. any way across it. That was when they would start opening up on you. Um, there was one day... The, the Afghans... Can you still hear me clearly? I've just opened the window. Yeah, I can hear you still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. The Afghans are really good at snap ambushes, right? Mm -hmm. And for the listeners... Uh, a snap ambush is where you don't have any notice that the ambush is coming. So you just kind of set it up on the spot and open up when when the time comes. So yeah. usually you've only got a few minutes warning. The the Afghans and are really good at snap ambushes. Yeah. So just to clarify, um, the, the person giving the ambush doesn't have much warning, obviously. No, the person receiving an ambush never has any warning. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. right. So, yeah, the, the people setting up the ambush don't have a very long time to set it up. They just have to kind of put it together on the fly and hope it goes well. Yeah. Um, there were quite a few snap ambushes. And I remember one day they, they tried to flank us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they had a couple of guys on motorbikes. And luckily, um, we, the gun was on the flank. So they didn't do too much trouble. They didn't do too much damage to us. We, we actually didn't take that many casualties. And mm -hmm. uh, again, 
uh, I want to make it clear to, to everyone who's listening, a casualty doesn't mean someone dies. Right. Right. And when, when we think about casualties, we think about people dying. Um, but when in reality, a casualty is anyone who gets injured. So you could fucking stub your toe and you're a casualty. So right. we, we, yeah. we took casualties, but we didn't take that, that many. I remember one day, um, we were in, everyone was in bed. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 they started taking some um, light machine gun fire. The, 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 the base started taking some light machine gun fire. Mm-hmm. So you, you get the order to stand to, which is the order to, you have to go to a specific yes. position, just hold that position. One of my mates getting out of bed rolled his ankle. Oh. And, and he broke his ankle. Oh, gosh, okay. And he was a casualty. <laughs> okay. So, so even though there was machine gun fire coming in on the base, you, the casualty was from just getting out of bed too fast and breaking his ankle, basically. Yeah, yeah. the casualty was the one, um, the guy who broke his ankle because he, he rolled out of bed the wrong way. Well, actually, actually, a similar story. The, the first casualty of, of my deployment was uh, a guy who got a bee sting on patrol and he was allergic. And he, <laughs> he went back yeah. in for the fr- had that, to that, call in the Chinook. Yeah, you know, you yeah. yeah, you've still got to do the paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, effectively, it's the same thing because it, it still requires uh, the units to process uh, someone who requires medical attention. So, you know, they have to call yeah. in a chop, they have to call an ambulance, a medic has to be dispatched. And the whole the same, same procedures if someone was shot is still being followed. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean when when I became a casualty, um, so I don't want to go too deep into what happened, but I kind of got blown up, and um, I was I was evacuated. Mm-hmm. I went back later uh, for a little while, but I was evacuated um, to sort of greater facilities to make sure I was all right, and because they thought I had a head injury. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the chopper ride was a lot of fun. I, you don't ride choppers that much, right? Surprising. Exactly. Um, so I got to ride in a helicopter, and that was fun. Yeah. Um, but usually yeah. they try and evacuate you by road. But um, head injuries is a bit different because they worry about how quickly they can get you to. Yeah. You know, if you've got a head injury, it might be life and death. Sure. In my case, no, it sure. wasn't that bad. Sure. And neck I mean, injuries. I, you said you don't want to talk about it too much, but um, yeah. That. That incident, was that an IED or what? It was an IED. Um, IEDs at the time were a relatively new thing. Um, there weren't too many protocols in place for for dealing with them. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the patrol was just walking along the road and it wasn't a huge IED. Um, it was a vehicle-borne one, but it wasn't massive. And it blew everyone off to the side. Um, mm-hmm. The injuries were minor, but it, it's unsettling um, to think that any car you might pass might randomly explode. Mm-hmm. Was this one you know, was, was was someone in it? No, there's no one in it. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just parked there, and yeah, that that kind of stuff. It's it's like a learning experience for the battalion. They go, okay, we now need to be very careful of cars. Let's set up. Uh, standard operating procedures for dealing with that car mm. or, or how, how, how are we going to approach cars in the future so that we don't get blown up again? Mm. Uh, and there was a lot of that stuff. Like, um, the, the, again, the, the Afghans are very good at laying booby traps. Yeah. So you have to be real careful about um, 
about how you deal with it. But again, like the battalion learned and you learn, um, oh, I've got to be careful here. Um, hypothetically speaking, there is potential that the battalion can learn to set a few traps of its own. Um, hypothetically speaking, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. So obviously, yeah, uh, a counter to to, to the to the yeah. ones by the insurgency. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, we were just walking. Well, we were patrolling along the road. I won't say we were walking because it makes it sound like a stroll. But <laughs> right. <laughs> we were uh, a road and the IED went off and it blew me uh, off to my right mm -hmm. and it it fucked my right side. Um, my my right leg is, is buggered and my right shoulder, I've had two reconstructions on it mm. and they've worked to a point. Um, but uh, a lot of a lot of grunts have had similar things where they just get sort of the wounds aren't particularly bad, but they niggle at you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they, they yeah. Do affect yeah. your they do affect your ability to to do your job. Um, in my case, my I couldn't run anymore as well as I should have, um, mm -hmm. because well, it was my my knee was real weak and painful. Mm -hmm. um, doing things like push ups, which is part of your basic fitness requirement for the military, yeah. um, I couldn't do many push ups anymore. So I really struggled to to meet the. The, the physical standards, which is why I, in the end, I got discharged mm, mm, mm. because I was no longer able to meet the, the physical requirements. And yeah. it's kind of cool because under the government rules um, for a return serviceman, um, I, I count as um, incapacitated, mm -hmm. which if we're being technical, I'm not, or I am because I don't have full use of certain, you know, my leg and I don't have full use of my arm. Mm. But um, day to day, I feel fine. Mm -hmm. And I, I go to the gym every day and I work out and, um, for example, I can't run on the treadmill, mm -hmm. but I run on the elliptical machine. I see. Right, 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 right. It doesn't affect my day-to-day -day yeah. ability to perform tasks in my life. So yeah. kind of, it's kind of a million-dollar wound. Right, I see. <laughs> I mean, so, so in the sense that the support you get from the, the state, from the government, is pretty, pretty good. Uh, they, they helped with that, I mm -hmm. suppose. Uh, no? Okay. <laughs> I don't have a lot to do with DVA, uh, what they call the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, I don't have a lot to do with DVA. I don't want to. I've got mates who have a real hard time dealing with them. Uh, okay. And they, they legitimately need help, and they're not getting mm. it. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're trying to sort of process their claims because they, they have this injury or that injury, and um, the, the department doesn't want to know about it. It's mm -hmm. it's a real shame. Really, I I, I assume that maybe because it's a small army and uh, you know comparative to the amount of deployment, so so really even even Australia the support for veterans is not not as, as as high as it should be. Most of the support that we get comes from ourselves. The 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 veteran community in Australia is really tight. Um, we've got the this soldiers, organization. The, yeah, the soldiers are paying for themselves then basically. Kind of yeah. Um, We've got this organization in Australia. It's called the RSL, which stands for the Returned Servicemen's League. And even the smallest town has a sub-branch of the RSL in it. So you might have a town with 50 people, but it will have its own RSL sub-branch. And uh, it's, depending on where you are, 
it's either really great or really fucking hopeless. Um, a lot of the younger veterans like myself uh, don't feel like we fit into the RSL because it's the Vietnam veterans have taken over and they're kind of, I don't know, I don't want to be disparaging, but they're kind of pussy. Uh, and they're very, they're very political. Um, okay. It's for them. It's all about being part of a committee and having that little bit of extra power. But okay. what they do is every RSL club that they have RSL clubs, right? And it's a restaurant, and it's a bar, and it's also um, uh, like a slot machine venue, right? And these these we call them pokies, and it's like you you know you put your like the one arm bandits. And okay, yeah, anyone, yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah, the gambling machines you have in a pub, maybe in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But if you can imagine um, that the RSL, it's got this massive restaurant in it, a bar, and the, the what we call the pokies, which is the the slot machines, mm. and there might be two hundred slot machines in there. Jeez, okay. And the mini general casino. public, yeah, like mini mini casinos, and the general public is allowed to go in there. Right. So you have general public eating dinner there, just like a normal restaurant, uh, drinking at the bar. There's not too much of that. The, the, the public would rather go to a pub, but there's a little bit of drinking at the bar. But the general public go in to gamble. And each machine makes something like 50 grand per annum. Okay. Cuts that by 150 or 200 machines. <clears throat> right. That's, that's a lot of money that goes to supporting veterans. Um, I see. So, that, yeah, so that's they, actually where a lot of support comes from, is from, from gambler, mini casinos running and run at the Veterans Association restaurant bar uh, venue. Yeah, and it goes for things like advocacy and, and support. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, if, if one bloke's having trouble, then the RSL might run a fundraiser or they might donate some money. Um, we've also got Legacy, which I believe England has. I'm not sure. But like, what's Legacy? Um support for families of deceased veterans. Okay. And they're also an advocacy, advocacy group for alive veterans. But um, say like my grandfather, he was a, he was a veteran, he died. Um, mm -hmm. Legacy came over and like, kept checking on my nan, checking mm -hmm. on my mom. Mm -hmm. My mom had lost her dad, even though my mom was like almost 60 when he died. Um, mm -hmm. They're like, okay, you, your father was a veteran, you've lost your father, what can we do to help you? Mm. The government doesn't do much, but it kind of funds the people who do. And okay. things aren't all bad. Okay. Okay. The, the, the RSL is a bit of a mixed bag, mm. depending on who's in charge of what sub-branch. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But there, mm. are, there are tons of veterans' organizations. I see. Tons I see. I see. Okay. So I just want to go, go back a little bit, so obviously, to the deployment. Yeah. Um, did you ever collaborate with any other ISAF or NATO forces or were you just only Australian troops that you, you worked with? We had attached people from different armies. We had like one or two POMs, a few Americans, uh -huh. uh, not too many else. Mm -hmm. um, we, we also had civilian contractors, but in terms of the, um, the other Western armies, no, not much. Like mm. We had liaison people coming in and out mm. because sometimes, especially the Americans were particularly mm. aggressive. They would want to launch an operation and they would need to coordinate with us. So you'd get a load of like Yank officers coming in, um, having a meeting and then they'd fuck off. Right. Um, right, right. Out in the field, out in the field, almost never. I see. Everyone I see. stuck at their zone. But okay. 
But if we ever needed artillery or we ever needed air support, directly onto the Americans. Really? Okay, so your, air, your, your airstrikes were being done by, by U.S. forces? Yes. And, and, and did you guys ever use uh, airstrike to call in on airstrikes on, the, on, on, on positions? Yeah, um, from time to time. Right. So just, I mean, they, uh, yeah, carry on. The, the trouble is that nobody, like everybody was frightened to take casualties because the, the moment you start taking too many casualties, then that gets back to Parliament and Parliament says, why, why are we taking so many casualties? You know, why is things going wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, 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 the CO, like the Colonel might get in trouble or the, right. whoever's in part of the task force might get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So they don't want too many casualties. So you start taking anything more than sporadic fire and the, the instinct is to, oh, well, we need a gunship or we need some kind of artillery mm-hmm. uh, to, to help us out. Mm-hmm. Rather than try and fight them, we'll just pulverize them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so most, most soldiers uh, on Afghan deployments, and to be honest, probably most most combat for, for, for at least the last 50 years since World War II, perhaps, uh, you know, there's actually very limited moments where you fire your weapon. Uh, I think the phrase that people use is, is war is boring. It's actually very boring. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of the time you yeah. take up your position and you just sit and wait. Yeah. Like yeah. I, in, in the whole time I was there, we probably, I mean, again, I was a gunner, so it was a bit different, but probably only went through about 200 rounds. In the whole tour, right. I see. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and when, of, we did, when we did, how we many casualties it? do you think you, your your battalion, your unit, actually inflicted? Do you have any idea or no? Did you ever see any? Uh, yeah, because you would get killed, the, killed enemy. You would you would have to um, after after you would have a contact, you would have to go through and do an assessment of the, of the ground, um, and yeah, there were there were bodies. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count many, but Yeah, um, there there were bodies. But I wouldn't like to say how many. We probably, well, over a hundred. Over a hundred. Yeah, because the the way they would operate, right? Um, and remember, a battalion's not a small organization. Um, oh yeah, no, exactly. So we're talking about a thousand men, perhaps, on the on your eight hundred. Eight hundred. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and in some form or another, the battalion was constantly on operations for the entire tour. Um, and the, 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 the Taliban's would operate in groups of maybe three or four. Um, but not all of those casualties, not all of those sort of, uh, KIA were directly contributed to, or directly attributed to our own fire. I mean, like I said, there were airstrikes, there was uh, the odd bit of artillery. Yeah. So... I would say the indirect fire was more attributed. Yeah, airstrikes and, and artillery probably probably would have been more more casualties came from that than actual small arms fire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never actually thought about this. I don't know. I don't know what we did with ours, to be honest. Um, the enemy what? dead. The enemy dead. Where were they buried? Did they hand them over to the local police? What was the process with that? They would be handed over to the police. Um, Uh, like or or the, the the village nearby, but you had to like it wasn't that simple because 
you had to check them out first. You had to go through them, make sure that who they were. Um, you know, yeah. if because you might find that this bloke who has just been shot, um, he might not be from the village. He might be from some other place, or he might be from the village and someone might know him and they might have information on who his mates are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had to work out who he was and then work out where he came from and work out lots of different stuff. I mean, that wasn't up to us. That was up to the intelligence boys. Intelligence guys, yeah. 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 Also, other, you know, documents and cell phones and things that they had on them as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you you had to be very careful. I, I, I know they got handed over eventually, but um, what was done with them in the meantime? They, they were definitely checked out. So I've got a, two, two, two questions I would ask. One is a, more of a minor point. Um, did you ever uh, deploy or use any position that you found out later was an old Soviet position or even uh, an old British position from the 19th century or from the deployment back in 1917 or whatever it was? Um, did you guys ever have that experience when you were going, oh, I'm in the watchtower, I'm on the same hill as a Russian soldier, a Soviet soldier from, from 10 years or 15 years prior to this. Or Did you ever have any moments like that? Well, I doubt I'd know if I did. Um, I, I would presume, like, I mean, now that you put it in my head, I go, yeah, okay, I probably um, had noticed some things like, um, you know, there's like an old tank body that's just kind of sitting there like uh, rotting. Mm -hmm. Oh, that may, I mean, it may have been from the Civil War. Uh, or it may have been from from Soviet days. I hadn't really considered it. I was just like, "There's an old tank." Mm, 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 mm. Um, you know, you you may go through a mosque that the Soviets had gone through twenty five years ago. Um, mm, 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 I hadn't. I honestly hadn't considered it. Mm, mm. Okay. Well, I mean, so, but it was never made obvious to you. For example, there was a moment on my deployment when. No, yeah, like so there was never a, there was never a like a, a sign that said you know, hammer and sickle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there was never anything that stood out that made me go, "Wow, Soviet shit," because yeah. that's the kind of thing I probably would have got excited over. <laughs> but it was never that standout stuff. But what were you saying? What was your story? Oh, they, I mean, it was an anecdote from some of the translators who were with us. But yeah. uh, on a ridge line where we were deployed. Uh, this ridge, this we, we, there was an observation post on the top of this ridge line. It looked into the farmland. It was a very good piece of ground, and it had desert yeah. behind, so difficult to attack from behind. And very good observation post. And to the right, there was in the in the sort of cliff, uh, they had dug out um, this position, and it was very old. You could see it was ancient, like you know, talking about maybe even a hundred years old or older. And it was purely made from the rock, you know, in on the actual cliffside. And the the guys like had said this, that, what's that? They chiselled into it. Yeah, yeah, they chiselled out of position, so in in the rock. So obviously, you can see there was something. It was it was crumbled and de decrepit. But uh, yeah. the, the interpreters had said that this was the British position from 1870 or something. Um, that the British had occupied the same piece of hill uh, or ridge line, I should say, um, in 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 the in the imperial era. Um, so yeah, so we ha we were obviously told that moment, and and I think um, other veterans have referred to you know going into Bagram Air Base and finding you know Soviet shell casings and and stuff that was still left over. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I just only if you'd 
actually been told this was X position occupied by so and so. But yeah, apart from yeah, old well, there was some telltale sign that it was a Soviet thing or an old yeah. British thing. Yeah, there wasn't that. Okay. Um, yeah. Like if I saw an old shell casing, I wouldn't have gone to inspect it. Right. 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 To see where it came from, I would have. Yeah. I would have sort of given it a wide berth. Yeah, no, of course you wouldn't. Well, no, no, you wouldn't go up to, to, to you know random stuff lying around. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously we've got to get ourselves onto the, the 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 second part of the the, the question, which is obviously actually the uh, you know the main reason why I guess anyone is talking about Afghanistan right now. Uh, yeah. Twenty years after the the start of the deployment for NATO, um, and obviously the Afghan government has collapsed uh, in a matter of yeah. days. Uh, I want to first in your answer. How did you feel at the end of your deployment back in 2003 or 2004, whenever you finished exactly? Um, how did you feel about the deployment then? And also, what do you think about the situation that's just unrolled today? It's actually a difficult question. Um, I think in our heart of hearts, even back then, we knew what was going to come. <clears throat> um, I remember before I deployed, um, I was at the RSL. Right, the, the the bar in the RSL, and because it had cheap drinks, and, um, <laughs> I, I was talking to an older bloke, and he was he he said, and he was a veteran himself, and he was like, "You guys are getting involved in something you shouldn't be. Um, you guys, there's no point you going. That you're going to go there, you're going to hold the fort for a while, and then things will go back to the way they always were." And he was a Vietnam veteran, so he knew what he was talking about. Um, amongst us, morale wasn't terrible. And I talk about morale at the time because it comes down to, you know, your, your personal feelings um, on the mission uh, affect your morale. And it may not affect your ability to uh, accomplish your mission, but it does affect the mood that you have when you're doing it. And even back then, um, it was kind of like, trying to swap mosquitoes. It was really hard to, to get to grips with the Taliban. And even when you did, um, it was sort of a, a drop in a bucket in terms of the damage you did to them. They didn't really care. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a sense of, let's just get it done so we can go home. Um, like, of course, before we deployed, we were stoked because you know every soldier hopes for at least one major war in the time of their service. Um, and after that wore off, after the sort of initial excitement wore off, it was just like, oh, you know, a drudge, let's just get this done and go home. I'm sick of trying to do this. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sick of basically swatting at mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when I watched it all happen, it was a sense, I was just shock. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel strongly about it one way or the other. It was just a sense mm. of, holy fuck, what have we been subsidizing all of these years? Or what have we mm. been, what have we been doing with our time since I left? Mm -hmm. You know, we're, they're supposed to have this trained army. They're supposed to have um, all of this ability. Mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. they, they muffed it so hard. And you, you had to kind of expect it. Like, again, it was sort of a case of, oh, I'm surprised it took as long as it did. Um, the moment the Americans mentioned that they were pulling out, 
that emboldened the Taliban and they started to take back the country and they knew the Americans weren't coming back. As long as they did actively target American soldiers, which mm -hmm. would have led to the Americans deploying back in, um, as long as they didn't directly target American soldiers, mm -hmm. you, they could pretty much move with impunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a sense of, well, I'm surprised it took so long. Mm -hmm. um, and a sense of, well, that was a big fucking waste of time. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so but you, you were also um, surprised, you were surprised, though, that it fell in, you know, going from having not, not taking any, having not taken any provincial capitals, any cities, and then more or less seven days later, yeah. they had everything. The entire country. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, again, um, I didn't have that much to do with the ANA. Right, I was going to say, you guys, I, well, you, there was no NA when you were there. No, we were on combat operations, right? Mm. Um, but the guys, and a, again, it's, a, it's a, quite a bit after my time, but no one who worked with the ANA thought they were any good. Mm. You know, like, again, firsthand, I couldn't tell you this stuff, but I've watched a lot of stuff on it, um, and it seems that nobody who worked with them had a lot of time for the ANA. And everybody seemed to think they were pretty shit. I mean, so what, why do people think they were so, um, you know, low quality or shit, as you put it? Um, yeah. What, what, do you think there's, that, there, that there was no real motivation? Uh, you know, this idea of an Afghan national army uh, is that, you know, do you think that maybe the, 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 the social dynamics, the fact that well, the, let, the, 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 well, the, the tribal nation, national split, do you think that's let got something to do with it? Oh, shit, yeah. Let me ask you this, right? In your experience, have the, have the Afghans ever thought of themselves as Afghan first or my tribe first or my yeah. ethnic group first? Right. So, the, the, right. Yeah, exactly. The, the idea, the Afghan national identity is a very, very young have... thing. If, if, it, if it exists in particular, yeah, if you're right. In the, South, think... in the South, no. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think a, a, a tr an Afghan, uh, what's the word, uh, national identity ever existed. I think um, everything has been based on clans. Mm -hmm. uh, for millennia, it's been based on clans. And sometimes these clans can work together. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they can't. I mean, even when they weren't fighting us before us, right? Even when they weren't fighting us, they just fought each other. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, our... Uh, I hate this family because this family 200 Love. years ago stole right. a goat from my uncle. So I'm now going to pursue him until the ends of the earth and, and shoot up his family. Mm. Um, that's kind of the way it's always been there. And to try and change that, I don't think was very clever. Um, so in terms of saying, well, the Afghan National Army, I think that's sort of a, a contradiction in terms. So, I mean, what do you think... Uh... Now that the West has pulled out, there's lots of different, over the years, but many different uh, rationales between why they deployed or why they didn't deploy. Obviously, 9-11 being one of the rationales. Other people talk about a pipeline. Other people talk yep. about regional geopolitics, obviously against Iran or against China or against Russia even. Um, yep. And then you also have Pakistan too. So why do you think the West really went in there in the, in the, in the end? Why did, why did Australia go in? I mean, uh, is Australia even part of NATO? That doesn't really matter, but obviously it's part of the international community. I don't, think we, community, I don't believe we are part of NATO. No, but, yeah. 
we went in as a as a bit of an arsenic to the Americans. Um, we have our own problems to deal with in Southeast Asia, but at the time, it was a very much an us or them mentality. I don't know if you, how much you remember of that time, but it was very much an us or them mentality. Um, you were either with the Americans or you were against them. And I think Bush said that. Did, I think yes, Bush yeah. said something along the lines of, if you're not fully backing us up, then you're against us. So Australia yeah. decided to fully back up um, the United States. So we went in as a diplomatic thing, which is also the same reason we went into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was about politics and it was about um, keeping the Americans happy with us. Mm-hmm. What you will notice is that we very quickly, or not very quickly, but much before the Americans, we pulled out. We pulled out of Afghanistan and we pulled out of Iraq long before the Americans did. Mm. Mm. I see. I remember so at the time. For Australia particularly, because of it, of it needing to uh, keep its ally happy, to be, uh, in, to keep, to toe the line with the American, with the Americans basically. Yeah. Okay, and so do you think, why didn't the Americans went? Do you think they, do you think it was all about 9-11? Honestly, probably. Um, I think it's a very, and I've had this discussion with people before, as someone who was there, I think it was a very, I think it would be a very cynical way to look at things, that they were just looking for gas pipelines, or, um, you know, it, after 9-11, America was fucking frothing, right? They were like a fucking hornet's nest that had had a rock thrown at it. I think later on the mission kind of changed um, and the sort of cynical stuff kind of crept in. But yeah. initially, I think they went in purely to get a bit of vengeance. Mm-hmm. Mm. Obviously, Iraq is being a different case though, right? I mean, I don't think... Oh, Iraq, yeah, Iraq, totally different box of frogs. But Afghanistan, I think it was about vengeance. Okay. They they had been given a very very bloody nose mm-hmm. by by Al Qaeda, um, and I don't believe that the Taliban was supporting Al Qaeda. I believe that Al Qaeda was supporting the Taliban, and for expediency, an yeah, yeah. Um, like Al Qaeda had the money, they had the infrastructure, they were willing to provide that money and infrastructure to the Taliban who were just trying to build, uh, admittedly, a fucked country, but a, mm. a country in, in the way that they saw fit. Mm. No one else was willing to give them any support. So they, they chose their side. Mm. Um, so you, you said something very interesting there, sorry, about Al-Qaeda. So, you know, the idea that actually Al-Qaeda was supporting the Taliban and not the other way around, which is actually a very good way of phrasing it. Um, don't you think that there's a bit of a contradiction or a confusion in the U.S. foreign policy there? Because yep, on one hand, with the other. yeah, so on one hand, supporting and funding the Mujahideen, which then became the Taliban, um, and then also particularly on Al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, Al-Qaeda comes from Saudi Arabia, and I'm sure the Saudis will say that they're against them, and I'm sure they'll show some acts that done against them. But at the end of the day, you know, Osama bin Laden, is was uh, Saudi royalty, uh, a billionaire. Um, yeah. And so the West, or the US particularly, is happy to arm and train and fund and support um, Saudi efforts. 
in the Middle East, but also at the same time is then fighting insurgencies, which whether, you know, I think it's almost an open secret that there are many links to Saudi Arabia and also Pakistan. So I mean, do you think there's a contradiction there with, with, with US foreign policy? Um, the thing is, I don't consider American foreign policy to be that clever. Um, they, oh, yeah. they think, yeah, <laughs> they, they do what is most expedient for them at the time without thinking of what trouble that might cause in the future. So it goes back to um, the uh, the um, the Americans. Why did they arm the Mujahideen? Uh, they knew that they were these sort of Islamic fundamentalist uh, type people. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the foreign policy at the time under Reagan was that area. It's better to have it painted green than red. Mm-hmm. Without thinking of the consequences of that. Um, right. You know, it was it was their their one objective and their one view was to stop the Soviets from getting a foothold in Central Asia any more than they already had. Mm-hmm. Um, then things went a bit cut up, and these people started turning against them because, in typical American fashion, um, they kind of politically ditched the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, they, oh, they ditched the Mujahideen and they're just like, okay, you, you, you guys can just, you're on your own now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which led to the creation of the Taliban. Um, yeah. The Taliban kind of grew out of um, the, the civil war. <clears throat> and at the time, uh, warlords held different areas and, and it was all a big mess. And there was lots of crime and bandits and, and yeah. the people... You know, you couldn't move from one village to the next because you had to pass through like checkpoints where you had to pay bribes and you were getting robbed and shot. Yeah. And Taliban kind of grew out of. They they took a checkpoint. Uh, just near Kandahar, they they took a checkpoint. And they said, okay, you can now freely pass through our checkpoint. Yeah. And then people got really excited by that and they went, oh, we've got a little bit of security and a little bit of stability. Um, Let's let's start to and the, the local people were sort of funding them and giving them um, the the resources they needed to take the next checkpoint, mm-hmm. and, and and it just kind of grew from there. And then right. the the ISI noticed them and the ISI was like, well, we have a load of orphans and shit in madrasas. Um, would you like those to to sort of be your foot soldiers? Foot soldiers, so to speak? yeah, yeah. The um, what's his name? Omar was like, yeah, all right. No, Omar, yeah. <laughs> Omar was like, yeah, all right, fine. And they they became quite a force. And what they found was people were happy to put up with the oppression and, well, in our eyes, the oppression, the um, the the restrictions mm-hmm. in exchange for security. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, but once. They, they did that really quick and really easy in the, uh, the Pashtun areas. But mm-hmm. once they started getting into the sort of Tajik areas and the Uzbek right. areas, they started to get a lot more resistance because ethnic different. stuff. Yeah, yeah, different, 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 different region. Um, yeah. Okay, interesting. I mean, uh, so where, where do you think, uh, sort of to, to, to finish, I guess, just sort of final thoughts on it. Where, where do you yeah. think it's all going to go now? And, and what do you think... Should should there be another intervention in, into Afghanistan, uh, or should should things be left to let the Afghans do things themselves? I'm a bit on the outer on this one. Um, I have my own ideas. 
about this and it doesn't necessarily mesh with what everyone else is saying. And I think we should be, I hate to say it, but we should be wholeheartedly supporting the Taliban in their endeavors. The, not because I like them, um, but because when we leave them on their own, they're going to look for someone who will support them and they're going to look for friends. And I would rather be their friend than have someone like Al Qaeda to fill that void, um, which is what led to the problems the last time. Um, further, disengaging with them and just telling them that they're wrong and telling them that um, that what they're doing is not correct, mm -hmm. they're not going to listen. They've never listened. Mm -hmm. um, we got more progress out of that country by just exp exposing ourselves to them and exposing them to our culture than we ever did by force of arms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we, for example, invest in extraction of minerals, right? And mm -hmm. we, we, let, we, we fund the extraction of minerals that they, they're happy to sell to us. A lot of their problems are born of sort of poverty and ignorance. Mm -hmm. By exposing them to something you might say better, mm -hmm. we might have some more success. Plus, I mean, it, no one has ever been able to tell me um, of a terror attack on foreign soil perpetrated by the Taliban. I see what you mean. Yes, it was actually the Al-Qaeda that did it, right? It was Al-Qaeda. And even the ones that say, yeah, I support the Taliban, they weren't actually Taliban. They were just sort of nutcases. And it, it kind of comes down to semantics. The, the Taliban, every time there's an attack on foreign soil attributed to them, they kind of disavow it. Yeah, um, yeah. So they're not, not Al-Qaeda specifically, right, 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 right. No. Yeah. And it seems to me that they just want to be left alone. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we don't do anything that's particularly going to piss them off, mm -hmm. they're, they're going to run their country in a way that we consider to be wrong. Um, they're going to run their country the way they see fit, and they're kind of going to leave us alone. And as long as they've got enough money to do what they need to do in terms of schools and hospitals. I don't see that void being filled by someone we don't like. Mm. You don't see it not being filled by someone like so someone. What, what do you mean by that? Sorry. OK, so at the moment, there is a vacuum in Afghanistan, a power vacuum in Afghanistan or a money vacuum. Um, the Taliban have taken charge. They have their plans. For nation you you'll call it nation building even if it doesn't mean the same in our eyes as it does with them right they want to build their little lovely islamic state right um i would rather that vacuum be filled by someone with our agenda than someone with a more dangerous agenda mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're I not going to get there by trying to shoot them no one ever has <clears throat> But maybe we can make some changes by improving the standard of living for the people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you think every, that the, the conclusion is to economics, actually. So economic yes. development is how you beat yep. insurgencies yep. and how you beat uh, Islamic fundamentalism uh, rather than through the barrel of the gun. I, I do. I do. Um, and, I, I, you know, um, I, I'm sort of aware of your... 
political leanings as well. But um, I think I think everyone can agree that everybody, regardless of your political persuasion, wants a higher standard of living. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're busy going to work and dealing with HR troubles or dealing with accounting problems or dealing with uh, logistical issues, you're not thinking about jihad. Yeah. Look at all the, the, the nutcases that ran away from, say, England and Australia and joined ISIS. They weren't the successful people of the nations. No, no. You look at uh, the, the Arab countries, the ones where you're having the biggest problems with fundamentalism is not um, Qatar or... Yes. Um, well, the UAE, it's... it's uh, the, yeah. Yemen, Somalia, yeah. Libya, Afghanistan. Yeah. Egypt, Somalia, Sudan. So I believe the only way to beat these issues is economically. And I think we need to engage with them further um, to sort of distract them from, <laughs> from fundamentalism. <laughs> you know, consumerism yes. is consumerism beats fundamentalism. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bre peace, bread and land beats, uh, beats, beats fundamentalism, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's yeah. been really, really great speaking to you, eh? Um, I think uh, we could probably talk more about uh, other things like this in terms of how to how to beat uh, fundamentalism. But I think we've touched on the on the, on your conclusion or what your thoughts are, and at least. Um, so I'd like to say, yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing your your little story, your experience of Afghanistan, and uh, it's been very interesting. And uh, perhaps we'll come, have you on another time to talk about uh, something similar, or maybe in a few months, once things change again, we could hear your your insight on on Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd love it. I'd love it. No problem. Have a good one. Great. Thank you very much, eh? Yeah, cheers. Squad, on the command move. At the short trail. Form up on the left of the markup at one arm's interval. Move. Heads up. Move smartly.